0: Just imagine five and a half billion lost people, mothers, fathers, and precious children. You are seeing five faces every second. If you were to stare at these faces every second of every minute of every day without blinking, it would take 35 years to see all of the lost people in the world. If you include the hundreds of millions more that would have been born during that time, it would take even longer. Now slow this down to the rate of one face per second, just long enough for you to say Jesus to each one. It would take more than 175 years. One night a wife found her husband standing over their newborn crib. It was their very first baby, and as she watched him look down at that very first baby, she noticed that there was a mixture of emotions that were going through his head and into his heart. Disbelief as he stared at that baby, doubt, delight, amazement, enchantment, skepticism, and she was touched by an unusual display of emotion that he seemed to be bearing. And so, with eyes glistening, she slipped her arm around his, and she whispered, a penny for your thoughts, dear. He said, I, I just can't believe it. It's amazing. She said, what's amazing, dear? What is it that you can't believe? He said, I, I just can't believe that somebody can make a crib like this for 89.95. <laughs> now, now here's the point. Here lies one of the greatest miracles of God's creation and all this new daddy saw was the crib. He didn't see what was laying inside. And I want to ask you a question. Do you see them? Take your Bibles this, mo- this afternoon and, and find the, a very familiar passage of scripture, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7 and 8 as we look at this in just a few moments. Let me ask you this, what did you see when you saw all those faces? Did you see the turbans? Did you see the scarves? What, what did you look at? Did you see the wrinkles Are the teeth Are the color of hair Are the color of skin? Did you see their age? Did you see their race? What, what did you see? Because can I tell you something? What you do determines what you see. You, you recognize that a barber looks at hair, goes to the mall and says, oh, oh she needs uh, this, he needs a haircut. Do you know that a roofer sees shingles, a cobbler sees shoes, a coach sees talent, a manicure sees fingernails? Do you know that God's people who've been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ look at souls? That's what we do. That's what we see. What do you see? Do you just look on the outside or is there something inside of you that looks on the inside? I, I want to tell you something that I'm not very proud of telling you but it's true. It's part of story for me. It's part of what God has done in my life to change who I am. As a little boy growing up, I was raised in a culture and a generation that many times only saw the outside of a person's skin. I grew up afraid of black people. You know, we fear what we do not understand. And you got to hear me when I say this. There was not a prejudiced bone in either of my parents' bodies. We, we never talked despairingly of another person's race. I never got that feeling. I never got that prejudice. I never got that bias from my parents or from my home. I got it from my culture. I got it from my, my peers. I got it from my classmates. It was during a, 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 a racial period of our society in the 70s. and May I tell you that our black and white television depicted the soul of a nation. And I fell victim, victim to the prejudice, and I made choices uh, of my own that reinforced my insecurities, my biases, my fears, my sinfulness. It wasn't until I was working my way through college at Firestone Tire and Rubber Company in Decatur, Illinois that, that I, I worked with a man he was a great basketball player who had been injured and I, I, I was working with him it, it, it was a great man we became great friends that summer I remember thinking to myself that I was doing him a favor when I used the word colored. he finally stopped me one day he said Ken look at me I'm not blue I'm not green God made me black. I am a a black man. And one day while we were working, the the injury caused some pain and and there was a tear coming out out of his eye and he grabbed my hand and he said, come here, come here. And he took my hand and he put it up against his face and he said, you feel that tear? He said, it's wet. It's salty. Just like yours. My blood is red, just like yours. I, I, am the same as you with exception that I have a different pigmentation of my skin. I feel, I hurt, I cry just like you. My problem was I was looking at the crib. My problem was that I was not looking at the person. That was the greatest summer in my life as God began to teach me about international missions. He taught me something that my education and the culture and the social standing could never teach me. And that is this, God is looking on not only the outside, but God is seeing the hearts. Because, listen to me, what you see is what you'll be. What you know is where you'll go. Your care will be your prayer, and your hands will always follow your heart. So what do you see? You see, you are in Acts chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7 and 8. What you have is the Lord Jesus before he ascends back to the Father. Saying one more time as he commissions those apostles and those disciples to take the gospel into all the world. He'd already told them in Matthew 28 to go. You can't spell gospel without go. You can't spell God without go. You can't spell good news without go. You don't spell go P-R-A-Y. You don't spell go G-I-V-E. You don't spell go P-R-E-A-C-H. You spell go, go. And he said, you got to go. And he was telling him to go. And here he is in, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, and, and he's been talking about the kingdom. And so they ask a question. See, my question for you and myself in this hour is simply this. What is it you see? Do you see him? Do you see him? See, because what the Lord wants to do is he wants them to see what he sees. And I think before we can begin to see outside of ourselves, we need to see what the Lord sees. It's right here in the text. The first thing he, he, he sees is he sees the selfishness of our culture. Now, he's been talking about the kingdom. It's natural that they would come back to him and say, "Lord, Lord, look at verse six. When they'd come together, they said, is, will it, this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're not thinking about his kingdom. He's thinking about his kingdom. They're thinking about their kingdom. And, 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 you know, that fits within, within who we are, the, the, the selfishness of our culture. And Jesus said, you should go. You should go into all the world. That's our assignment. That's our mandate. That's our commission. It was Hudson Taylor, the missionary statesman to China, that said that the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. Now, some of you have been in the military, and may I tell you this, I'm sure that when your master sergeant gave you a command, you didn't say, now, sir, that is a very good suggestion. Guess what? I think I'm going to take that into consideration. I don't think you said that. And may I tell you this, the Lord Jesus is giving a command. But here's our problem. We've read this and preached this, and we've looked at this text so long. There are many believers who inadvertently have misquoted this passage. And I believe they've changed the meaning. They have said, some have said, you shall be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that, but that's what they say. It's first in Jerusalem. When we get everybody saved in Jerusalem, then we can go to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what we can do. But it starts there first. I've had people say to me, Pastor, Ken, you need to understand something. Lostness is lostness. And I would agree with that. And I live in Florida, and they'll say, listen, there are, there are people who are lost in Miami. I know, Pastor Ken, that your church goes to Mali, West Africa. I know you've planted a church there. I know you go there to that Muslim country, and I know that you do But listen to me, lostness is lostness. And there are as many people, and people are lost in Miami just like they are in Mali. Is that a true statement? That is absolutely a true statement, but that isn't even the point. Let me tell you what the point is. The point is, how many people in Miami walked by a church on their way to hell? And how many people in Mali, West Africa, walked by a church on their way to hell? That's the point. I pastor a church, Idlewild Baptist Church. The pastor years ago was George Billings. His brother-in-law was Oswald Smith. A People's Church in Toronto, a tremendous mission-minded group of people. And he preached that that famous sermon you may have heard where he said that why should anyone hear the gospel twice until everybody's heard the gospel once? If you heard that sermon, you remember his illustration. He said, suppose that we were with the Lord Jesus Christ and suppose that we were with the disciples when they were feeding the 5,000. And suppose that we took our baskets, and we fill, he filled them up, and he said, now, the people are sitting down, go feed them. And now suppose that we go, and we feed everybody on the front row. And then we come back. And when we come back, we fill our baskets again. And when we fill our baskets again, we go back to the front row. And we fill everybody on the front row. And then we come back, and then we fill our baskets again. And then we go, and we fill again everybody on the front row. You know, after a while, somebody in the back row is going to say, Hey, hey, what what about us on the back row? Could somebody bring us some food on the back row? And may I tell you what, what... Uh, Dr. Tom Elliff is going to try to say tomorrow what he's going to try to encourage Southern Baptists. One of the reasons why we've come here to Phoenix is that there are 3,800 people groups and millions of people within those people groups who have never heard the gospel, and we've got to get the gospel to the back row, and we can't just see the crib. There's a baby inside that crib. We can't just see the form. We just can't see the function. We just can't see who we are. But you see, the Lord Jesus sees there's the selfishness of our culture. That's what he says. He said, you're thinking about your kingdom. I want you to think about my kingdom. And, and, but you see, that fits, our, that fits our Madison Avenue thought. That, that fits who we are. We, we are pretty much a selfish generation and a selfish culture. Our theology many times is myology. Have you ever, have you ever in witnessing to someone said this? I've said it a hundred times. Let me tell you something. Mike, if you were the only person on this earth, Jesus Christ would have died for you. Now, now listen to me, listen to me. That's winsome. I get it. I understand it. I understand the rhetoric. It sounds good. There's only one problem with it. It's a half-truth, and a half-truth is still a whole lie. I, I understand that Jesus Christ loves not only all of us, I understand that Jesus Christ loves, uh, loves each of us. And I get that. I understand that. But I think one of the reasons why I, I was prone to say that, I don't say that anymore. Because, you see, that's the culture in which we live in. The culture that I live in and you live in says this, and Madison Avenue sells it to us every single day. You deserve a break today. You have it your way. Be all that you can be. I did it my way because I'm worth it. Obey your thirst. What in the world does that mean? Me time. And you see, that, that fits our culture. I'm not trying to destroy a song for you. I, I love this song. I sing this song. I weep when I sing this song, like a rose trampled on the ground. He thought of me. Above all. I, I like that song. But can I tell you something? He's never just thought of you. He's never just thought of you. It, you, you see that, that sounds good. But you see, when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross between two thieves, those thieves never dreamed they would ever be on the cross. Never. And that's all that Jesus dreamed about, is that he would die for the penalty and the sins of the whole world. And Jesus died for the world. And there he is. And that was his plan. And that's been his plan all along. But he wasn't just thinking of you. And you know why I say that? Because of Revelation 7 and verse 9. You know what it says? Revelation 7 and verse 9 says, After these things I looked and behold a multitude that no one could number of all the nations and all the tribes and all the peoples and all the tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Can I tell you what God sees? God's been seeing all of the nations and all the tribes and all the people and it's not just about us. And so you know what the Lord sees? He sees that half of the world's population, over three billion people have never heard the presentation of the gospel. He sees what Dr. Tom Elliff is going to try to give to us in, in it, from his heart about the 3,800 people groups of taking the gospel, that 41% of those people groups are still unreached, that 50,000 people die every day without hearing about the death and the burial and the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am told it was estimated that Princess Diana's funeral was held in London's Westminster Abbey and between 3 and 5 billion people watched by television worldwide. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but tell you something. If that's true, that simply means that more people know about Diana, the princess of Wales' death, than Jesus of Nazareth's life and death and resurrection. Something's got to change. We know that. Let me see if I can illustrate it to you this way. Let's take take this section right over here and let's just count 100 people. Let's take the entire world and let's boil it down right here to this 100 people. And here's what you need to understand. With all the existing human ratios being the same, there's a village. And this village would look like this if we took the entire population of the world and brought it down to 100 people. 57 of these people would be Asians. 21 of them would be Europeans. 14 of them would be from Western Hemisphere, which includes North and South America. Eight of them would be from Africa. 51 of you people would be female. 49 of you would be male. 66 of you would be believers, would be non-believers, excuse me. And 34 of you would be believers. 80 of you would live in substandard housing. That simply means there's no uh, running water, no electricity, no solid food over their heads. 70 of you people would, would be illiterate and unable to read. Fifty, half of them would be malnourished. It means that whatever they're getting in way of food supplement does not adequately nourish their bodies. One is near birth. One is near death. And the one that is dying, it represents a part of the population that's at the, under the age of ten who die every second. And for one reason, they don't have enough food. And out of the hundred people, six of these people in the village, they have all, half of all of the village's wealth and all six of them live in the United States. What do you see? You see, if you were the dad that had a son that's dying, wouldn't it be reasonable that you'd say, well, listen, could, could somebody get the gospel over here to my son? Could somebody do something to help feed my family? Isn't that, isn't that reasonable? Of course that's reasonable. Well, let me ask you this. What are the six people doing? With their wealth. See, it's one thing to talk about going. It's one thing to talk about, you know, this is the mandate and this is the mission. And it's one thing for us to all say, and I say it with you, I agree with you, we can all do better. But we can't hire enough missionaries. And, and it's gonna take money. And it's gonna cost. And, and we gotta get practical say, well, what happens to that dollar bill? Because, you see, let me just show you this. The dollar bill represents how America spends its money. Do you know how America spends its money? Let let me show you how America spends its money. 24% is housing. That's not just the mortgage. That's maintenance. That's the pool. That's the lawn care. 19% is health care. That's insurance. That's prescriptions. That's the meds. That's NyQuil. that's, That's cough drops. That's Bengay. 22% 22% is recreation and personal needs. That's pleasures. That's things we feel are very, very important to us. 15% is food for our stomach, our meals, our eating, out. And the average American takes 17% and they spend it on their automobile. That's their ride and the insurance that it costs to cover that ride and the repairs and things that go into that ride. Now, if you add that, it doesn't take a mathematician to do this. That's 97%. Now, what do we have left to help the person who needs to be going on the mission field? What do we have left to help the nations and help the people who, who are starving and need the gospel but need something in their stomach to hear the gospel? Well, the pagan—it seems like the statistics are pagans give two percent. But see, the real question is this: What are we going to do with the rest? It's it's worse than this, because see, in America, we don't just spend a dollar; we spend a buck twenty-seven of that dollar. I took our church, our church in Idlewild, and a $14 million budget, and, and, and of the almost 5,000 house, heads of household, 18 and over, I, I said to them just not too long ago, we took Hillsborough County where we live. We took the median salary of Hillsborough County where we live. And said, "Listen, if these folks would just tithe, I'm not talking about generous giving. I'm not talking about offerings. I'm not talking about giving to the missions or giving to the nations. I'm talking about just being obedient and giving ten percent. Giving if we did that, you know what would happen? I tell you exactly what would happen. We would have ten million dollars a year to give to the nations. That's the kind of thought we got to have. That's what it's going to take." I, I, I heard Bob Coy, who's a pastor at Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale. I don't know if you ever heard him. He's a tremendous communicator. And he was talking about these very, some of these very numbers that I just gave you today. He was talking about how God did something in his life, and I thought, you know what? It's his story. Nobody tells the story better than he tells it, and so I'm going to let him tell you his story of what God did in his heart because, you see, he's a pastor, and a pastor can speak to pastors. So without any further delay, why don't you just listen to Bob Coy as he talks about what God showed him in the area
1: of generous giving. Watch this. Watch it. You never know how you get invited to speak to some of these things. And what you'll find in going back a couple of years ago, I was on a list, somebody contacted me, there's this group called Generous Giving, and like Michael Easley, never really heard of Generous Giving. And I thought, oh, interesting invite. Where is it at? Oh, Orlando. Oh, I'll be speaking with, oh, K. Arthur, I love Kay. Oh, Chip Ingram, that's an honor. Oh, I get to talk with, and I thought, this is a great opportunity. Teach on giving. So I wrote real, you know, neat notes and made sure, good illustrations. I'm going to go to Orlando and speak on giving. That's my job. Okay, I'm ready. So I go to Orlando and I sit down and what happens at this generous giving conference? I see a few of the videos like the ones you just saw. And a very stately industrialist takes the podium. His name is Stanley Tam. He begins to share his heart about how he's purposed to live on little to begin and to accomplish giving away much. And I discover that this guy, in giving his business to God, now well into his 80s, has been responsible in giving over a hundred million dollars to mission work in China. Now, what he did was he capped his salary and he just started giving away and giving away and giving away. Well, again, I'm supposed to be a speaker there and now the speaker is thinking I shouldn't speak. (laughs) Why? The conference is generous giving and I happen to be a tickled tither. Now there's a difference between the two. A tickled tither is one who has given his tithe and he's tickled about it because he's doing everything he knows God wants him to do. And I've been a tickled tither for a long time. Ask me about my giving record, I'm a tickled tither. But a generous giver if somebody basically takes it and says, it's all yours, God. I go, oh, wow, I'm hearing this again and again and again. Well, I got up to that podium. I taught my state and I left. Get out of here. Go now. <laughs> Why? Because the same bug that got Michael is the same bug that got me. And I was afraid it would get me. Why? Because once this thing gets you, you've got to start looking at the house you live in. You gotta start looking at the car. Cu- I don't want to look at that right now. No, no, no. Why? Because I'm climbing a ladder and I'm near the top. <laughs> about no. And I, about now in my ministry, and aren't I, and I allowed to drive the nicer cars and have the nicer things and wear cufflinks rather than buttons? Isn't it now? <laughs> <laughs> God, knocking on my hair. Bob. Would you learn it, generous giving? All belongs to you, Lord. (laughs) So what do you want back? Bob, what'd you start with? What do you mean? Where did I find you, Bob? Oh, you mean 25 years ago? In my brother's living room? An alcoholic? A cocaine addict? A womanizer? Broke? in need of a savior? You mean when I was on my knees looking up toward heaven God, changed my life? Anything, God, anywhere, God, anytime, God, I'm yours, God. Oh, you mean that? What did you have then, Bob? Broken, used up, good for nothing life. And that's why I gave it to you, Lord. I wanted you to have it all. (laughs) I held back nothing. It was total surrender, God, and you know it. Yeah, I know it. Because you didn't have anything, Bob. But now I, 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 now I, I, now it's... Really? It's yours, Bob? You know, I could take it. You could take it. I could take it if I want to. Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> it's called Chapter 11, Bob. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! Oh, that Chapter 11. Oh, oh that cha- Oh, I, I, I guess you could, Lord. But I don't want you to force it out of my heart. No, no, no. What I have to do is remember in my heart All that you've done for me. Oh, that's right. Why am I in the ministry in the first place? Was it to become wealthy? I don't know that that was your motivation. Now, it might be in some subcultures of the Christian faith today, but back to us. No, that was never the motivation. Was it to become popular? No, that was not the motivation. I remember thinking if the church could be a couple hundred strong, I'd be satisfied my whole life long. I just want a small flock to pour my life into. There was no ambition beyond." Guys, says, so everything beyond 200 people is extra, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, what kind of salary do you think guys make that have 200 people? Less? Now listen, you're going to have to wrestle out in your own heart. But here's what happened to me. God, what happened to me? What happened? How is it that the success of a ministry caused me to assume so much about what belongs to who? How how did that happen? How did I become more owner than servant? No, no, no. I'm your servant. I'm not an owner. I mean, you've got to let go, and and if in fact I do let go, if in fact you're my master and I'm your servant, I can simply trust that you're going to take care of this, my need, right? Haven't I always? And don't you have more than you ever thought or asked or dreamed of? Yeah. Bob, study my word on the subject of stewardship. And I did, and you know what I found? And you know what I discovered? I had a lot to celebrate. I had a lot to celebrate. You have a lot to celebrate.
0: So when a Sylvie Thomas in the fellowship of our church comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm going back to India. I came here for an education. I got that education. I have parents who need to hear the gospel. I said, "Sylvie, do you know what's happening in the place where you're going? He said, yes. Pastor, I'm not sure I'll ever come back. And I'm selling it all. And I'm giving it all. And when I think about where we were as a church, and I think about the half percent that when I came 22 years ago to Idlewild Fellowship, not really making very much of an impact, and through the help of people like, like uh, International Mission Board, people like Larry Reeser, uh, people that, that made a difference in my life, I began to catch a vision for the world. And it changed my heart. I stopped looking at cribs. I started seeing babies. And so when I go back to, to Mali, West Africa, and I go back to see a Mama mamatu who tells me, doni, 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 which means little by little, Pastor, little by little. And I've been witnessing to him and sharing with him and weeping for him for three years and saying, Mama tu, mamatu, you've got to give your life to Jesus. I can't go to heaven without you, mamatu. And I get a phone call on a satellite phone one day in Tampa while I'm driving. I nearly wrecked the car. It's Mama 2. He's speaking to a translator. He says, Pastor Ken, I want you to know I am now walking the Jesus road. I am now walking the Jesus road. You see, when you go to Zambia and Mali and you go to Delhi and Haiti and Cuba and Honduras and Guatemala and Dominican Republic and Greece and Brazil and Costa Rica and Sudan and Bolivia and China and Nepal, and you adopt two states like Tennessee and New York, and you take an an elementary school and you do a 181 where the foster care, 181 girls we've identified in Hillsborough County, and you try to provide for them a boutique where they can get clothes free, and when you do things like that. You realize that that all of a sudden God's doing something in your heart and it's going to cost. And this is something I'm not preaching to you out of something that that I want you to hear. I'm preaching it out because I'm I'm working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. And it's costing me and it needs to cost me and I I want it to cost me even more. Why? Because of the selfishness of our culture. Secondly, because of the greatness of our calling. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me. The power is the Holy Spirit. The purpose is unto me. The place is is Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And you know what I've discovered? Here's what i discovered. i discovered that when you study the gospel, something happened to these people because of the gospel. First of all, change happened and courage happened. Simon Peter, who hides his face with a young girl, recognizes him, is the same man that points his finger and says, you crucified Christ. What happened? The Holy Spirit came upon him. That's what happened. James and John, the sons of thunder, who said, "Lord, Lord, do you, do, you, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Come on, God, let's just nuke them till they glow and shoot them in the dark. Why don't we do that?" All of a sudden, he's called the beloved disciple. You know why? Because change and courage has taken place, because compassion and conviction has taken place. And they, every one of them were persecuted, and every one of them did die for the gospel. While serving on the International Mission Board for eight eight years, we lost missionaries in Yemen with a shooting. I remember, and I remember what our missionaries said. Vance, our missionaries said, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't bring us home. We're not coming home. Well, I thought, that's our missionaries. That's who they are, laying on the line every single day. I had a man come to me recently who works in security and intelligence at MacDill Air Force Base. He works at CENTCOM there. And he said to me, Pastor, I know where you go in West Africa. I've studied the area. Here's what you need to know. There are some people a little north of you. It isn't exactly where you are, but Pastor, they're moving that way. And I don't think you ought to go anymore. I, I, I recommend you not go anymore. And when you think about a, a pastor in Florida who burns the Koran and they don't, all they know is that you're a pastor in Florida, they're going to identify with you. And Pastor, I'm afraid you may not come home. I said to my missions pastor, I said to my wife, what, 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 what does that mean? And the Holy Spirit of God showed me in Acts 20, 24 where Paul says, and I don't say this presumptuously, I don't say this arrogantly, I, I just read the Word of God and it says, Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself. I said, okay, then I still got to go. And that's where our missionaries are, because of the greatness of the calling because of the lostness of the cities. See, it isn't just the selfishness of our culture, Jesus saw. It isn't just the, the greatness of our calling. It's the lostness of the cities. I, I appreciate the contextualization here. I know it, witness, it, it commences in Jerusalem and continues in Judea and Samaria and concludes in the other I, I get that. But can I tell you what Luke meant here? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. To go. To go because of the lostness of the cities. It came home to me a few years ago. I was the president of the Florida Baptist Convention and I close with this. I was back on the in the back with the parliamentarian and, and those things with Dr. John Sullivan and we were getting ready to, to, to go out and I, I was nervous anyway. I had to preach the, the, the convention sermon and, and I'd institute a, a prayer band that we were all to wear and we were going to pray for the nations. And I, I, and I remember as I, as, we, as I reached in that bag, they said, make sure you get a bracelet on that bag because you're not going to have time for the ushers out there to give it to you. So you pick one out before you come on the platform and I did that. And I, I, I reached that bag, and I picked up a bracelet, and I said, I, I don't want that one. I want another nation. And I stuck it in there, and I pulled it out, and I said, that's the same nation. I don't want that one. I want another one. And finally, I just dumped them out there, and I, and I went through them, and they all said the same thing. It said Vietnam. I said, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to wear Vietnam. I, I don't want to pray for Vietnam. But I'm the president. All right, I'll put it on. And as I'm walking out there with my Bible, thoughts are going through my head. Here's what's going through my head. What was that all about back there? And I thought, what was that about? And then it hit me. My brother stepped on a landmine in Vietnam. I had been hating a group of people that I never met. He lost his leg and we, we never got to play basketball again or jog together or run together. He made it, he lived, he's living today. But all I could think of was the reason I didn't want to pray because I didn't want God to do anything in that nation, and before I preached, I got right, and I got right with God. But a few months ago, at our visit reception, some Vietnamese family came to our church, and they came back in when I hugged her, I kissed her on the forehead. I think she probably thought that was pretty strange, but I have a feeling that God in heaven looked at the angels and said, "Look at that boy right there. He's changed because of the gospel. What do you see? What do you see? And may we see not only the selfishness of our culture, and may we see the greatness of the calling of God, but may we see the lostness in our city. Southern Baptists, let's embrace the ends of the earth to the end of the age. God bless you.